Think about the last time you drank a cup of water. Do you know where it came from? If that question intrigues you, you're in the right place. Welcome to Uncharted Geography, where we map the world one conversation at a time. Our mission is to help people explore, impact, and be in awe of the world, and to see how geography as a discipline can get us there. In this episode, we talk to Mike Beck, a hydrologist who works internationally in development. Mike's insights and perspectives offer us just a glimpse into the wide, wide world of water and all of the ways that it impacts us. There are so many points that we touch on in this episode that could have been an episode unto themselves. But for now, let's jump in. Mike, thanks for joining me on the show. I'm super excited to have you. Yeah, pleasure to be here. One of the questions that I like to start off with is just asking what one of the most special places in the world is to you. Yeah, I mean, so much of my interest in life is traveling, for sure. I always have to say Leyte. I have to say the Philippines. It's where I did my Peace Corps service. It's an island just north of Mindanao and in the southern part of the Visayas of the Philippines. And frankly, it's kind of famous for getting hit a lot by very large typhoons, uh, in particular Typhoon Haiyan in 2013. But it's a special place to me. It's I spent a year there in Peace Corps trying to learn a language that not that many people speak and trying to just feel it and be part of it. And uh, I've gone back a lot and love it there. It feels like community. It feels like just some of my idea of tropical beauty. You know, mm. we get this unreal vision of, of like a tropical beach drink in your hand yeah. experience, especially as an American. I think that's one of the, it's paradise. Yeah, it's paradise. It's one of the things we're given. It's it's one of the advertisements of life. And so that's kind of it for me a little bit. And it's it's my own version of it. And I, and I love it there. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey with water, hydrology, community development? Totally. It's definitely been a bit eclectic, I guess. I'll say I never really had a plan or, you know, I never knew sustainable development existed as an industry when I was a kid or in college or and I never knew that the way that foreign aid works, the way that policy dynamics work. I was very focused on being a scientist when I was younger. And in college, I got into geomorphology through a lab. I just thought doing the physics of landscapes was so cool. I thought it was so cool to be able to look at a hill slope and, and have a, my professor said, okay, here's your homework problem set. Do a force balance diagram on this hill slope with a river at the bottom. And just trying to do the, the Newtonian forces of the roots of the tree and of like all right. these little integral parts of a landscape and realizing just how infinitely complex they are and how at the end of the day, it's an impossible task. I, I thought that was so cool. That's what brought me to hydrology and into water. It is interesting. Like when I think of high school physics, I, you know, you have very discrete objects that are like not in relationship with a lot of other things, yeah, but that's yeah. not how the world works. Yeah, right? they're not real, right? Everything is connected and re in relationship and interacting with each other. So how do you crunch those numbers? So that was kind of the introduction to this more practical side of science that has connection in the earth. After college, how did you take that geomorphology 
further and what was the next step there for you? You know, it was a journey. I think every career is a journey. After college, I worked for biofuels. I got more interested in environmental side of things. I worked for a biofuel startup. And then following that, just got interested in communities. I started working with a nonprofit in Philadelphia that did refugee resettlement and did like community services for Southeast Asian communities in Philly. I think that was my first jaunt into nonprofit world, into community services. That probably felt a bit disconnected from your science background at the time, I would imagine. Very, very. In fact, a lot of it was just, I kind of had a sense that I wanted to explore that world and just ask the question of, is this something I need to do in my life or want to be part of in my life? And I did a lot of volunteering and just ask the question of what can I do? What useful skills, you know, I don't have a, a, a social science background or I don't have a you know, social worker background. Mm. How can I be useful in this situation? And it ended up being database management. Mm. I can work an Excel spreadsheet and build a database in SAP or something like that. Enjoying that is what taught me that, okay, how do I put all these pieces together? You know, I went to college for all these years. I got to use this somehow, right, right. <laughs> um, which I think is a question we all end up with at some point in our lives. Yeah, everybody assumes that there's a, a clear plan after college, and that is pretty much the furthest from the truth, I yeah. think, for, for most people. Yeah. I've got a chemistry major and a geology major. Yeah. How does this apply to real life? I found a group called the Rural Water, Rural Water Resources Network funded by some UN organizations that looked into how water resources are, are used in, in rural development. I put together databases around that and, and put together kind of networking events and they just had a lot of information. It was an information hub. Right. And that, I think, was around when I first discovered Peace Corps and when I first just learned that this whole industry existed, that you could do water and development and that you could provide social services in a way that for me leveraged my interest in natural resources, leveraged my interest in geology and geomorphology and just the natural world. What does water development hydrologist work look like? Yeah, so a lot of things, frankly. There's a lot of elements of that and you can you can be infrastructure people. So what I first got into was groundwater, hydrogeology. Mm-hmm. And hydrogeology is is the looking at the geology of groundwater, mm-hmm. the geology of underground water. So what an, what an aquifer, how does an aquifer work? And an aquifer is the untapped underground water in a given area, right? It's the okay. idea that below our feet is this huge reservoir of water for pretty much every person in the planet. Everyone listening to this podcast right now has a giant reservoir of water below their feet it's embedded in the sand it's it's in the rock if it's porous depend and and then that flows and there's and it's flowing between granular media it's almost as if you had a imagine like a packed bed of sand with with water flowing in between okay Uh, but then that gets denser and denser and it's going to be different if you've got a clay there like imagine water flowing between soil versus between sand it's got totally different physics and dynamics and if you try to put a straw in it and suck it up yeah it's gonna work differently so there's scientists who have to go figure out how that's gonna work 
I don't often think about how fluid the ground beneath us probably is. <laughs> yeah, just how, how much is moving, how much is down there, and like that's then feeding into our rivers. You know, all that the water in a river isn't isn't just that immediate rainfall trickling out, or a lot of times it's also glaciers or snow melt upriver, but also it's just the water from previous rainfalls percolating through the ground slowly and dripping out into mm. the river because uh, the ground is, the aquifer around it is slowly feeding into that surface water area. So the earth is kind of like a sponge. Yeah, we've got a whole sponge cities. Sponge cities are a thing. This What's is, that? Sponge cities are, it's seen a lot as a almost Chinese concept because it's become such a big part of Chinese city planning. But it's the idea of designing cities in a way where they they absorb all this water and where they're really good at absorbing water so it's like an innovative practice yeah it's an innovative way of designing a city you know nowadays even in 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 any city you'll see a lot more green space and and sometimes they'll even make little swamplands or wetland areas and a big part of the the engineering there is wetlands are really good at capturing water we're surrounded by so much concrete and so much asphalt and what we say an impermeable surface mm. that uh, cities become at big flood risk. When Houston got hit, I remember that being a big discussion was that, well, it's a huge urban sprawl oh. and it's all made of concrete and it's impermeable. So nothing is flowing through it. Yeah. So where else is the water going to go? Water can't escape. basically. If, if it can't go down into the soil, it's going to move laterally. Right. And go into your house. Go into, yeah, exactly. <laughs> And so a lot of city planning these days is around thinking about those surfaces. So, so when you went to Peace Corps in the Philippines, what kinds of projects are you doing? What does that look like? Yeah, so with this rural water supply network, I got into groundwater, got into boreholes. Boreholes are drilling a hole in the ground to pump water out. And people, you know, you might have these in your house in the United States. Sure. Something like 70% of, of water used water in, in the United States for drinking water yeah. is groundwater. Is that the same as creating a well? Yeah, it's a well. A borehole is a well. And then when I went to Peace Corps, I basically continued that. Uh, there was a, a town in Leyte, this island that I lived on, and they had a water system that had broken down during some extreme flooding, and they were looking for a water resource person to come in and support them redesigning the water system and redesigning uh, how the different villages that need water, drinking water resources, could get them. Is there a scarcity of water? Like, is it difficult to access water in Leyte, you said? Leyte, Leyte, yeah. No, no. uh, There's, you know, it's a tropical island. There's a huge amount of rainfall. Sure. There's a scarcity of clean water. Right. Drinkable water. Because... Actually, one of the problems you get when you have a lot of water is that the water tends to be really close to the surface, that groundwater. So you don't have to dig a well very deep Mm. to get to the water. But another result of that is the water is more likely to be dirty in a lot of cases. And that's because it hasn't been able to percolate and travel through the ground as much. Traveling through the ground can clean the water. The more soil and clay and sand that it passes through the cleaner the water gets to Mm -hmm. some extent and of course that depends on the 
the makeup of, of your of your soil and water and clay. If there's boron in it or or iron compounds or other things, then that's you know, going to be an issue. That influences the bacterial amount. It it can so it, iron can influence the bacterial, but it also just influences like chemical. You know, boron um, can can break down your teeth enamel. Whoa. Your teeth can turn black if there's a lot of boron in your water. It's really I've, I saw it a lot in in Leyte. You'll go to villages where all the kids, even like five-year-old kids, their teeth are black. Really? And it's, you know, that's for life. It doesn't go away. It's really a... The chemical uh, reaction has yeah, occurred. Your tooth is your tooth is a big thing of calcium. So, yeah, drinking water systems were, were the core of my late experience. So it was about going to villages and figuring out how can we supply in rural water development. We say self-supply. Self-supply is the idea that the village supplies its own drinking water or its own water resources locally. Right. Whereas, you know, a lot in a lot of, for instance, a U.S. city, you've got pipes coming to your house, and that's coming from probably quite far away, like a reservoir uh, in the middle of town or, or upriver from your city. This is a big geography question in general, right, is where does your water come from? I think the ability to answer that question says a lot about how connected to your environment you are. Totally. And I, for one, am a bit... Do you know where your water comes exactly. from? Exactly. I don't I don't think... I want to say in Seoul, the water comes from the Han River and from the rivers that are collected from the mountains around it. But do I really understand the water around me and how it operates? No, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say I do very much. Your water comes from Chunchan. Okay. Uh, let me, I, I do, I am picking up my phone to look at the name of the dam. I've been to the reservoir. Oh, so it comes from a dam in particular. Yeah, or, so, or a dam channels it. Yeah, there's a reservoir that most of the drinking water in Seoul comes from. And yes, it's an it's a tributary of the Han River. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. But it's 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 Chinchan, basically. It's just... So inland... Just a upriver of Chinchan. Because they have a big reservoir right next to the city there, I know. It's kind of like a giant lake. Is that the same thing? Yeah, that's probably one of your... I mean, there's. I'm, I'm sure there's a ton of reservoirs around Seoul. I think of uh, the Kong River. Is that pretty common? Do most cities just have a reservoir somewhere? Yeah, I'd say so. Most so cities... we build reservoirs. Like, we build these giant tubs of water. <laughs> yeah. So to speak. Yeah. I don't know if that's a good analogy. Yeah, it's a great analogy. We build these giant tubs of water right next to the city to make sure we all have drinking water. Right. I, I don't really work too closely in that, mm. but I would say, yeah, I would guess that pretty much every large major city in the world has large surface water reservoirs. Groundwater recharges slowly. You can't really feed the water needs of a, of a large city with something like groundwater. Groundwater is a part of the equation, and the filling of that reservoir largely comes from groundwater. But at the end of the day, you usually have somewhere you have a dam with a reservoir behind it somewhere mm-hmm. nearby a city. Is that the purpose, the primary purpose of a dam is to one of contain uh, water resources for urban populations? Most dams primarily supply agricultural water. Okay. Because most water used in the world is agricultural. And, you know, dams also have flood management reasons that you can control the water, how much water is coming into the river at once, and then 
be able to stem that flood a little faster. So, so you can do these self-supply projects in mm -hmm. more rural areas where you want to make sure there's sanitary water for communities. Yeah. There's more urban and or agricultural projects like dams and reservoirs and systems building out. Are there other main veins that hydrologists and or freshwater folks work on? I think urban water, irrigation water, rural water, economic water, I guess, is the other piece you would say. What's economic water? Yeah, there's probably different terms for that. That's how I think of it. But that's basically that our industries use a ton of water. When you have a factory, even when you have a, imagine a coal plant, right? At the end of the day, a coal plant burns coal for fuel, mm -hmm. but the actual energy comes from a spinning turbine. Oh. And that turbine is spun by steam. My understanding is that, is that a coal plant uses a lot of water because you're burning the coal and then heating up water to make steam. That's turning your turbine. Uh, but then that water, of course, you wanted to recycle it, but it, it's not always going to get recycled. It, you're going to have to use reuse water. Tons of industrial processes use a lot of water. I would guess that is still larger than the amount of water we use just in drinking water. So when you say economic water, you're more talking about like industrial things that we use. To, so this is something that I find really interesting is how much water goes into everything like the shirt I'm wearing right now or yeah. the phone that I have and just the idea that there's this price of water that's paid for everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it kind of blew my mind the first time somebody explained to me that, Oh, well an almond, you know, that's got a water value. Right. And a hamburger has a water value. Right. And so do clothes and all of those things carry a price and I guess the flip side to that is that a lot of our water is subsidized in the world, right? So pretty much all of our water is subsidized in the world. What, what do you think about that? I guess the, the deeper question I'm asking is, do you feel like our relationship with water, economically, environmentally, is it working? Is it healthy? It definitely needs a lot of reform. I would say it's unsustainable in most of the world. We do have this legacy of subsidized water everywhere. And it kind of comes from, traditionally, one of the roles of government is to give you water. Mm -hmm. Water should be free. And that's just how the world worked for a long time. It was a way that governments showed legitimacy was, hey, we supply water. And that's continued into the 21st, 20th and 21st century. Uh, and a lot of times to the detriment of local resources, because it's not sustainable. One of the, one of the big examples... That I would definitely suggest to everyone to Google the Aral Sea. Yeah. To Google the Aral Sea crisis of the In last... Central Asia, right? Yeah, the last 50 years. So this is primarily in Uzbekistan, but it crosses a couple borders. But the Aral Sea was this large body of water in the middle of Central Asia that in 1960 was 10 times, I'm going to say maybe 50 times larger than it is now. Certainly at least in order of magnitude. And it's because of poor water resource management and practices. Uzbekistan became a big cotton exporter. That became what the economy was centralized on and focused on. And they just kept pumping water into irrigation systems to produce cotton, which is a very water-intensive product. And it wasn't sustainable. 
And it continued for 30, 40 years as an unsustainable practice. Mm-hmm. And it literally drained an entire sea. Just wild. Like, and it, that sea is gigantic. It's gigantic. I mean, it's a, it's a, I've seen it on a map. It's got to be around the size of like the Caspian Sea or maybe smaller. But like it is a massive yeah, it's, lake. It's the size of like an American state. It's about one Pennsylvania worth of water. Wow. That has been drained. I think that's an interesting problem and question is how do we allocate that water in a way that makes sense? I've been hearing about some cities around the world like Cape Town in South Africa where they're starting to have conversations about day zero, that their city will run out of water. And they actually have a date where they're saying, oh, shoot, (laughs) in a year, we're going to have nothing. And what do you do with a city of millions of people where there's just no water anymore? It's happening in a lot of parts of the world. And it's part of climate change. It's part of population growth. It's just some of the wild challenges of the 21st, 22nd century that we're going to have to face using up all of our resources in places where there's tons of people. But you know, one answer that, that you'll get, and it does come back to water, it's, it kind of is like housing. It's this good that is both a, a human good, and so there's tons of social elements to it, but it's also a capital good. You want to put it into an economic system, and it's somewhere in between. What is the role of government? And this just comes back to tons of questions of, of what is the role of government? What, what is the value of a human life? Like What is the value of a glass of water to keep someone in Cape Town alive when there's zero water left versus the value of your cotton shirt? Mm-hmm. and the water needed for that. And so that's where capital markets come in. And a lot of people do argue to that water should be more commoditized and capital markets should be applied more strongly. Water subsidies take a lot of different forms. Sometimes they're direct. Water company has a certain bill and the government pays most of it and says, this is the price of water. That's one example. But we, we talk a lot in the United States these days about the Southwest, about California and the water crises there. And there it's a lot more just tied to land rights. You, know, you have these historical water rights of farmers. And so when you look at L.A., and this is not something I'm an expert on or know all the details of by any means, you have all these farmers down in, in California who basically have a historical right to a certain amount of water. But now with growing populations, with growing demands from the cities... Those are going to change. Those, the water needs are, are changing, and the supply is not increasing fast enough or changing fast enough to meet those. And you do start wanting to do a bit of economic analysis, right? Like the value of a glass of water, purified water, keeping people alive, is orders of magnitude higher than the value of a glass of water being applied to a crop. But at the same time, we need an agriculture system. Crops keep people alive in another way. <laughs> right, right. So how do you how do you value those differences of drinking water versus agricultural water versus clothing water? Right. If if you tell a farmer they have to pay the same rate per per gallon of water as someone does for drinking, they're going to go out of business. They um, and so you're basically just saying, okay, we don't want farmers anymore. And of course, as a society, we're not in that place. Mm-hmm. And so some compromise has to be reached. And, and this challenge is happening all over the world. And the same you know, becomes even more stark when you look at industry. 
whereas agriculture and drinking water both have a very human element to them, these feel like ancient things that we need as people to live. A cotton t-shirt factory (laughs) using up a third of a town's water supply feels a little more affluent. How do you price the water is a big question all around the world. So to tack back to your work, does this relate back to the kinds of projects uh, or the kinds of dilemmas that... Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd say it was very related to that self-supply concept that I brought up before. So self-supply, you can kind of think of as off-grid water. And my work in, in Peace Corps, I would say I was there for a year, 10 months of that, was not spent building any water system. The vast majority of my time was spent putting together a governance system for the water. We had to go around to different community members, get local buy-in, have big meetings, serve everyone lunch to make sure they would come to our big meetings, and then go through how can we formalize, how can we make local laws in order to give them water. I want to tack in a slightly different direction as well, because I know you are a self-described water person, Um, (laughs) not just as a hydrologist, but just through free diving and loving, you know, the home you built in the Philippines and the ocean and things like that is, do you find that water works its way into your life in areas more of hobby or passion? Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, I've gotten a lot more into free diving in the last year or two dabbled in some surfing and and all these different water-related hobbies. I do think, in some ways, I think I just am really in love with with landscapes. And I think the ocean is gorgeous. And and water water makes landscapes. So many of the landscapes that that we find beautiful are made by water. I always, I love karst. Karst is a type of rock. Um, From limestone. Yeah, it's like a limestone kind of rock. And it's this rock that wears away quite relatively easily from water. And so you get these really interesting formations. And I always think of Thailand, like Southeast Asia. And that's a very old karst. You know, there's these these towers of rock coming out of the ocean. Those are what um, the... The movie Avatar, the James Cameron movie, uh, yeah. those floating islands yeah. with the mist are based off of karst erosion in right. China. It's this part called Wu Lingyuan. But Halong Bay, Thailand, they have the same kind of erosion. I think from Avatar, it was inspired by fog surrounding these mm. pillars, mm. pillar mountains right, of right. rock, of karst. Yeah. And they look like they're floating in the mist. And that to me is like... I find myself falling in love with landscapes too when they just, there's these moments when you're in a new kind of place and it feels like magic a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what it is for me. Uh, Diving, hey, turns out two thirds, three quarters of the earth is underwater and like there's this whole world of landscapes that we don't have access to. And of course, Mm. there's just a whole other planet down there. I think that's so cool. Yeah, definitely. And I, I do think, you know, coral reefs make up I think it's 25% of marine biodiversity. And a lot of coral reefs are within diving range. We've got quite a world to discover. I think a lot of people become geologists because they like science and they like the outdoors. Yeah. I, it was kind of frankly, to some extent, that simple for me. I was like, okay, what's a, what's a job where I might get to go outside every now and then? And in the same way, 
if we shift our appreciation of what good clean water can do, (laughs) you know, avoiding some of those situations like flooding in Houston when a hurricane comes through and uh, avoiding disease from water, like if we really recognize that that is a, a very human, very serious problem, it sounds like it has the ability to create a lot of benefit too, though, like infrastructure, jobs, yeah. a, a better community where we're valuing fresh water. Yeah. I mean, you talk about water value, how much value the water in your town is being used for. When you have a rice farming community, that's about as low as you can get on the value per gallon of water used. So you're obviously very passionate about water and the work you do. And is do you see a role or do you see that passion taking you into a specific impact that you'd like to have with this work? Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, I, I think governance is the answer for me. I think because, as you said earlier, water comes from this government funded place where, where historically water's been something that we get supplied by the government. There's a ton of corruption. There's a ton of poor governance around water infrastructure and water development and planning and just a lack of really good, robust science of what is the best way to do this. In a lot of spaces, there just are, there's a bit of a dearth of science in my perspective. How many people are doing big data on development of rural water supplies and what the most efficient way to be doing some of this stuff is. So I think you even mentioned that the UN has a surprisingly sparse database when it comes to water development, which surprised me because it's such a huge issue. Yeah, in my opinion. I mean, the biggest database is this one called JMP, which comes out of UNICEF. And uh, a bit of that is because people are pretty good at caring about children, which Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. I, I'm, I'm happy about that. <laughs> but the fact that some of our best water data kind of comes out of this just caring about children lens mm. um, is important, and that lens is important, but there's a lot of other lenses that water needs to be looked at from and that that data is needed from, and sometimes mm-hmm. we, we miss out on those. So, so yeah, I do think there's a serious dearth of data. So I think governance becomes, for me, is the largest issue in the water sector. When you go, it's wildly different nation to nation because this has been a job of governments and then the government figures out how to do it and the way that figures that out is basically different in every country. You know, every dollar that gets funneled away from the public good is a, is a dollar of less water supplied to people, more people getting waterborne diseases, more people not having enough drinking water for me, that's, that's what I would like to tackle in my career. And I think a big part of that is just, is data. I think a big part of that is telling the stories and, mm-hmm. and uncovering uh, the pictures and building systems. Well, I, I mentioned this in uh, the last episode, or first episode, uh, but I love that geography is such a great field to take one thing and look at it and then it just unfolds this world. And I, I definitely feel like you've just done that with water for us as an audience. Uh, so thank you for that. As we're gearing toward the, the last bit, I'm curious if there's anything that you wish people understood or knew. I don't know if that would be about water issues. Yeah, I, I would say this, this touches on water. As you said, 
you know, you talked about how many gallons of water a hamburger takes. Mm. And, and I think I'd say life cycle analysis. And that's not just a water thing, um, but life cycle analysis is this concept that any product, anything you look at has a full life cycle of all the materials, all the be them natural resources or, or energies, etc., that went into that. We as people are really bad at grasping that. You know, it always drives me kind of crazy when people look at, at windmills and, and renewable energy and say, like, this is perfect. Like, a windmill is perfect. It, it uses no resources. It's, like, just on its own. Wind is free. And, and not to say wind isn't, isn't renewable energies are awesome and, and do a lot of amazing things, but that windmill uses a lot of resources to make. And not all those, not all those resources are, are perfectly sustainable or, you know, a lot of the, the wood from the inside of a propeller blade uh, comes from Ecuador, comes from indigenous forests of Ecuador that, that are not being sustainably really? forested. But I think the more that people are aware of this kind of stuff, and the more that we're pushing the products that we buy uh, and companies to say, hey, what is the supply chain of your stuff? And what is the, the full life cycle of your stuff, right? How much gasoline did it take to transport that thing? How much, if, if you have a cell phone, okay, that cell phone has a little piece of gold in it, little a lot of different metals in it, and that metal had to be mined. Where was it mined? Because if, it if it was mined in Canada versus Chile, it's going to have a very different life cycle and a very different amount of carbon emissions associated with that mining, mm. a very different uh, human rights spectra associated with that mining. We need to be looking at that stuff as a society. I think a big thing to think about in that, too, is resources right now are being valued in some way. Mm -hmm. right? We have systems to value all the resources. We talk about it all this time with climate change, right? There's no system to value the carbon that we're spewing. And I think when you're, when you're voting and you're thinking about these systems is asking yourself, do I agree with the system that values this? If you know that, that your water is made, is subsidized and is made very cheap locally, um, do you agree with that? And, and, you know, I'm not saying yes or no, there's huge value to having water be massively subsidized. And yeah. I think to some extent it absolutely should be. Mm. If we're all paying 10 times more for water, we're going to have an issue. I think asking yourself, do you agree with the systems around you for protecting natural resources, for valuing them? That's something to, to consider. Thank you, Mike Back, for joining us on the show. Getting a perspective of all the ways that water influences us has been an incredible experience. An additional thank you to Joel Gruley from the UW-Madison Department of Geography. Thanks for letting me use you as a sounding board in the development of this show. Your support is much appreciated. Uncharted Geography is an educational resource designed to help our global community learn about the world and its activities. It is hosted, recorded, mixed, and produced by John McHugh.